brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, Higher Side Chatters, bring in the heat from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and it's clear by now that the events of 2020 have caused an untold amount of stress, anxiety, and uncertainty with millions of people across the world thrust into a not-so-helpful fear state at a scale we've never known before. We've seen the panic that scarcity can cause when the conveniences of modern life are disrupted, and the shock that sets in when supply chains we become so dependent on show the slightest weakness. It hasn't been the best year, but the most effective medicine for that and the strongest hedge against getting caught up in it again is to take the necessary action to have a plan beyond suckling at the teat of a shaky, unsustainable system until it all breaks down. Well, that starts with food security, and I've personally found the ripple effects of getting high-quality grass-fed animals from a local producer are so positive, I can't believe I didn't do it sooner. Your meat is of a much higher quality, including parts of the animal you don't typically get at the grocery store, yet nutrient experts say are needed for optimal health. You form deeper bonds with the people you care about when you split an animal with them, knowing that they're in a better place along with you. Your money is no longer contributing to the sick factory farming system we all know is wrong, and giving your business to that local farm is helping to ensure that decentralized and independent food supply chains will be around the next time the oily appendages of the big machine try to lock it all down in one fell swoop. Well, raise a glass to today's guest, the great Doug Lindemood, the proprietor of Sunrise Ranch, an all-natural, regenerative, non-industrial, non-chemical, non-government subsidy-funded family farm in Oceanside, California. At Sunrise Ranch, they raise humanely-treated, antibiotic-free, organic-fed, no-soy, no-GMO beef, pork, and truly free-range chicken. And they employ holistic, planned grazing methods to feed their animals the freshest, rapidly growing green grass possible that simultaneously builds rather than depletes the land and surrounding environment. Needless to say, they're deeply committed to the principles of small farming and regenerative agriculture. Doug's hard work has definitely been a big help to your humble host in 2020, and I couldn't be more psyched to have him here. The restorative rancher, king of the pasture, and sustainable answer to our broken corporate system. Doug, my man, welcome to the higher side. Thank you, Greg. It's good to be with you. 
Yes, this is going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for doing it. Most interviews I do around here don't really relate to my personal life like this one does, but over the summer, some friends and I split a cow from you, and we had a big get-together and laid out all these cuts on the table and did the draft system you recommended, and not only was it a lot of fun, but it prompted more group meals despite the lockdowns, contributed greatly to everyone's mental and physical health, And instead of being tempted to talk to them about the conspiracies of it all, I could just focus on the positive. So that was a godsend, man. But to get us started here, talk to us about how you started the ranch, because I understand you were also looking for a better way, largely due to your wife's health at the time, right? That's right. Uh, Eve was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, and we were forced to the precipice of a decision as to how we were going to handle this. Were we going to go the natural route? Were we going to go with the pharmaceutical route? And what are the prospects of that? How, if you decide to go natural, how do you source that stuff? Where do you get it? What should I be looking for? What kind of questions do I ask? And it just became this sort of long circuitous journey that we made. We found the piece to the puzzle fairly easy when it came to organics in terms of vegetables and fruits. That's not too hard to come by. But what stumped us was meat, milk, and dairy. We just couldn't figure that out. And so we combined some of my natural farm experience from my very, very early days as a kid on a ranch, and we stepped out into the the unknown. And I got a couple milk cows, if you can believe that. That's a pretty bold start off, but we started (laughs) with some milk cows. I was probably the only guy going to grad school in a nice suit and tie, throughout the day, having milked a cow in the morning and needed to get back in enough time to milk the cow at night. And of course, most people don't realize that a milk cow, a modern milk cow is just overly productive. One of the reasons the early settlers always had milk cows with them was because they're vibrantly productive. And I can remember in our early days walking in in the evening milking with 12 gallons of milk from our milk cow and going, hey, kids, did you guys get a cup of milk? And they're going, yeah, dad, we got a cup of milk and we've had, you know, plenty of milk for the day. And I was stumped. I'm like, what do I do with all this extra milk? And we ended up giving it away. We ended up starting cow shares and all kinds of stuff with our neighbors. And and we eventually started Sunrise Ranch from that, just an abundance of production. Very cool. And kudos to you for just diving in like that. Seems pretty intimidating, but I think a lot of people will find that when they even just start with a vegetable garden or a couple fruit trees that Even then, an inexperienced person will be surprised with the yields that they end up getting. Interesting to hear that also seems to be true with dairy. And of course, we've talked about how one good-sized cow can feed a family of four for a year. That surprised me when I heard it. But going back to your story, when you decided to go with food be thy medicine, that's a bold and difficult choice, and it does take a sort of bravery Because we have this big monolithic system telling us otherwise, and it feels risky to go against all that advice and take things into your own hands. Of course, everyone has to make their own choices, but what advice would you have for people who know they should do this intellectually, but worry that when faced with a real decision point, they might not have the strength to go against the so-called experts of the system? It seems really difficult. Yeah, it is, Craig. And the first thing I would say is you're not alone. You're going to feel like you're alone and you're not. That's the most important thing. We had to 
overcome that feeling of, man, I'm like the only person doing this. The fact is that especially with, you know, social media and modern chat groups and everything, I mean, if you decide and you determine that you want to grow something, grow anything, grow the smallest thing, there's support out there. There's a group for somebody that wants to start a strawberry patch. I guarantee it. And the knowledge is there. But you've got to be tenacious and you've got to press in and you've got to kind of follow that aggressively, if you will. One of the big drawbacks of our current system, Greg, is that about 1.9% of Americans are growing the other 98.1% of Americans' food for them right now. I laugh because in the early days of grass-fed beef for our company, we'd go to a group chat or a talk or something or a Weston A. Price meeting or just a gathering. And we'd tell people, hey, yeah, we grow grass-fed beef. You know, we're a grass-fed cattle company. And boy, I'll tell you, you could hear the music stop. I mean, it was really something else, right? Everybody go, what? And it dawned on me, Greg, that 50 years ago, that would not have gotten anybody's attention. Everybody had a cow in the backyard. Our agricultural umbilical was well attached. <laughs> it isn't anymore. That's a simple fact. It's an unusual sort of curiosity. So gathering that knowledge is, number one, it's a little more scarce than it was in the past. But the second thing is that most of us know that those in the agricultural industry, yeah, some of them have degrees, but that's not a formal education. The education that you get in the agricultural world is what we farmers and ranchers and cattlemen call pass it down, which is just a three word phrase that means my great grandfather taught my grandfather who taught my dad who will teach me. And a lot of it is just experience. One of my favorite sayings is you can't Google experience. And so a lot of that knowledge is tacitly embedded in our farmers, in our ranchers, in our cattlemen, in our agriculturalists. And it can be kind of hard to get out. And those folks, by the way, are not necessarily very verbal. <laughs> but there's a whole nother generation coming up that's excited about it, that are newbies, if you will. They weren't third, fourth, fifth generation farmers and ranchers. They're going at it all again, and it's just beautiful because it's blossoming into a whole nother world of breaking those paradigms that allow new methods to come forward and allow expansion in the areas where we thought things might work, but maybe we were afraid to because if we failed, we could let great-grandpa down. Our new generation of ranchers and cattlemen and direct marketers don't have that baggage, so to speak. We don't have all the experience, but... The big advantage we found is that when I wanted to do something new in ranching, I didn't have to go check with great grandpa or be worried about what he thought. I just did it. And if it worked, great. And if it didn't, well, that was on me and I needed to figure something else out. Mm. Yes. I mean, that's a great point about how the last few decades we have just been kind of weaned off that self-sufficient lifestyle and thrust right into dependence and not even on the same quality of food or food production because it's all corporatized now. And that is obviously a, a huge issue. And I think a lot of people realize that sustainable pasture-raised animals are no real comparison to what factory farming produces. But can you talk to people a little bit about the differences between a steak they would get from Sunrise versus a corporate grocery store? What makes one so much better than the other? I mean, because clearly all cows are not created or raised equally, are they? That's right. They're not. The main difference is that the fat in a grass-fed beef is just comprised entirely different from the fat in a conventionally raised beef, one that is perhaps raised in a feedlot. Grass-fed beef has to grow a whole lot slower. We harvest it at 28 months. 
usually 28 to 29 months. That's when it's fully ready for harvest. But from that time until it's ready, we find that the fat that is grown in that animal is comprised mechanically of a whole bunch of different content than your conventional beef. So we've done some statistical tests on it. We've done some analytical tests and we found that it's about four to six times more nutritionally dense than the beef you would get in a supermarket. So not only is it comprised differently, but it tastes differently. It cooks differently. It's it's an entirely different animal, no pun intended. (laughs) It is more nutritionally dense. It requires a whole lot more patience. One of the problems that we've had is that as we introduce this nutritionally dense product to new customers that have just come off of you know, XYZ grocery store and are kind of curiously looking at our beef is that the kitchen skills that went away when we industrialized our food are very hard to learn almost as equally as hard as the ranching skills. Mm. And that can be a real tough hill to climb that people we've become as a society very easily adapted to, well, how long do I microwave this for? (laughs) When in fact, you're handing somebody a 40 or a $50 steak and go, look, you know, this requires great care and how you handle it and how you cook it. When the people do take the time to overcome that barrier, they see an abundance on the other side of it. It tastes so much better. It's so much richer. Your body resonates with those vitamins and those minerals that are only present in grass-fed beef. You feel fuller, interestingly enough. Many of our customers start with the biggest box that they can get. So they'll get a subscription, say, to the ranch and they'll buy the biggest one they can get. And over time, we notice that it actually decreases in size. They'll switch to a smaller size and and then they'll space it out a little more. And it's fascinating to me because I really, I see that as such a blessing because what I'm noticing is, is our recipient is actually filling up on less, which is just a beautiful thing. You don't see that in our modern chemically oriented production-oriented society of industrial food. If you look at the super size, it's always gotten bigger and bigger and bigger since fast food came out. So they're actually headed the opposite direction we are. We've noticed our customers will actually eat less. They'll sit down at a meal and the meat portion will be smaller, say, than it had been in the past. And that's more filling. It's more nutrient-dense. Mm-hmm. I can definitely attest to it tasting better and cooking a bit differently. And that's a great point about the skills required to cook. There is no point in getting premium nutrient-dense meat and then using seed oils or Crisco or a cheap aluminum pan to cook in or throwing some steaks on the grill with chemical-soaked Walmart charcoal. It's all a learning process and no small task to cook a healthy meal from beginning to end. And we talked a bit about getting Sunrise started and the catalyst for all that. But paint a picture for people of the size and scope of where you're at now. Obviously, there's been some growth, but it's still basically a family-run operation, right? Yeah, it is. In fact, my son is full-time with us now. He's my oldest. My daughter runs our entire distribution warehouse division. We have, oh gosh, a handful of employees, no more than about eight or so. We're still a small family farm. When you call the phone, we answer. It's kind of cool. I love doing that. People go, gosh, I got a human. (laughs) Yeah, you're talking to your rancher. What can I do for you? In fact, we use that as a selling point. I sort of, oh, I guess maybe press the edges of sarcasm. Sometimes I'll talk to people and they'll go, well, how do I find out the quality of my meat? And I go, this is really simple. Just call Costco and ask to talk to the rancher. (laughs) And there's always a long pregnant pause. And I go, no, I'm just kidding. You'll never be able to do that. 
So we're what's called single source beef. When we have, raise an animal on our ranch and it eventually makes it through that process and we hand it to a customer, there's a number on our package that can tell us, we can trace all the way back to who its mother and father was, what bull it came from on our ranch when it was born, how it lived, what grasses it grazed. I can tell you in our cattle records what pastures it grazed in. We currently have about 5,000 acres that we lease in totality. It's divided up into four separate units. One of them's pretty big. It's a good probably 40 minutes or so on a four-wheeler full speed to get from one end to the other. There are parts of it that we can only get back to on horseback, but they're pretty extensive. We've got good roads. We've had a lot of time to work on them. These were old conventional ranches where cattle were just left to do whatever they do on a day-to-day basis. And a cow by nature, they are a grass connoisseur. Mm -hmm. They can seek out a bunch of grass that they need for that particular day that tastes a certain way during a certain season. I joke around and I, I say, look, cows basically have two jobs, and that is to breed and eat. So they're very good at that. They can devote 50% of their time to each. You know, if you just sat on the sofa all day and we just said, Greg, well, the only thing you got to do is breed and eat. You go, wow, this is not a bad life. You'd be pretty good at both of those things. And so cows can graze and find grass in places that would just blow your mind. That can be good and that can be bad. On a conventional ranch, they're just left to do that. And the sad fact is that they'll go out, they'll take a bite of a particular type of grass and they'll go get something else. And then the next day they'll come back and take a bite of that same grass they took the previous day. That abuses the grass and it doesn't give it a chance to grow. Our job as regenerative cattle ranchers is to go in and prevent that second bite. They're allowed to take the first, but we have to prevent them from taking the second bite because that grass has to be able to grow back. And that is how we prevent a degradation of the system. And we, in fact, enhance it through carbon sequestration and building up of carbon and and recycling of nutrients. So it's a big facility. We've been at it, like I said, for many years. And Over the time, over a long period of time, we begin to see changes in these conventional ranches that we took over, and we get to see the ecosystem responding to the natural massaging of a cow in correct proportion and in correct timing. Yeah, there are a lot of nuances and biomimicry factors that go into the regenerative approach that you have, and I'm sure... We will get into a lot of that stuff because it is super interesting to see the intelligence of nature just emerge and it just needs a little bit of shepherding and a little tweaking and you can really optimize everything and uh, the effects are quite shocking really. But speaking of the phone calls, on, on one phone call I had with maybe you or someone on the team, we were talking a little bit about the differences in the meat and even USDA meat, I mean, which, you know, people consider that or they're conditioned to think that's like the highest standard, but there are some requirements even there that legally it needs to have, I think it was lactic acid added to it or something to that effect. It's not that just yours is grass fed, but it also doesn't have a lot of the preservatives and additives that go into the meat that you're going to get at a Costco or even some of these grocery stores that people consider to be the more natural ones in their neighborhood. Even even some of those added chemicals are making it into that meat. Is that right? That's right, Greg. And this is a sad sort of saga and story. It was one that we brought upon ourselves. And I say we collectively because, frankly, we're responsible for this. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I wasn't the guy in the USDA making decisions. But the fact is that this is what happens when we sort of detach from the things that we should be responsible for. So we in the cattle industry... And certainly the USDA bear the burden of this. And it's kind of an interesting story. What happened many, many years ago was 
cattle producers wanted a way to effectively feed larger amounts of protein to their cattle because large amounts of protein in cattle will put on good muscle and fat quickly. And the USDA said, well, we've got an idea. You could feed carry-on to cows. Carry-on is a simple word that means ground up, decaying animals. And yes, believe it or not, this actually happened. Of course, because you can't rebel against nature like that, within a few years, we had a terrible outbreak of bovine spongiform encephalopathy, which is basically what we call mad cow disease. And it really does make a cow mad. It drives them crazy. And if you can imagine an herbivore like a cow being forced to act in a carnivore way, and again, these were finely ground up nutrients that they were putting into their feed to help them build on bulk, it made them crazy. There was an actual something that happened on the spinal column in the brain, and it actually made them mad, and it became mad cow disease. And it could actually be passed through the meat. In a odd twist of circumstances, we actually knew a family member that died from it. It was very terrible. It wasn't long after that that the USDA said, okay, we've made a huge mistake. You can't feed carry-on. Don't do that because we have this outbreak of mad cow disease that's killing people and obviously killing cows, and it couldn't be contained. And so one of the ways they decided they could partially contain it is they would take the brain and the spinal column out of every animal that they harvested. So that kind of helped a little bit. But what we ended up with was we ended up with an outbreak of a disease that was running rampant through our systems. And so as a result, the USDA had to step in and heavily control the outbreak of mad cow disease. That was one element that was kind of a harbinger of bad things to come. The other was what we would all commonly know as E. coli. Now, E. coli, again, has another sordid sort of history that goes behind it. And this is a really fascinating one. When we were head-to-head -head with the Soviets, there was a guy by the name of Earl Butts who came up with a great idea, at least it might have been great at the time, that said, hey, I've got an idea. Let's outproduce the Russians. Let's just outproduce them. Mine is bigger, better, and faster. And one of the ways that he decided to do that as Secretary of Agriculture was he encouraged small farms to get out and all farms to become big. His mantra was plant hedgerow to hedgerow. Go for it all that you can. Full steam ahead, boys. And American agriculture took off. And corn farmers, with the introduction of genetically modified materials and pesticides, were producing 160 bushels an acre when their great-great-grandfather may have been lucky to get out 80 or 90. And so these bumper crops came in, and corn was prolific and everywhere. And of course, somebody one day woke up and said, well, what do we do with all this? And we ended up with a glut of corn and we didn't know what to do with it. Well, our smartest scientists, if and smart has an asterisk next to it, decided to come up with things like corn syrup and corn ethanol and all these wonderful products. And in the cattle industry, they said, well, let's feed corn to cows as well. Well, there's only one way you can get a cow to eat corn, and that is to give them no other choice. And so you do that by simply locking them in a what we call a feedlot, which is basically a fenced area, and don't give them the choice to eat grass, and you've got to force them to eat corn. And they're going to do that. It's a little bit like chocolate. I can probably get you to take some of it, but you wouldn't want to live off of it. And if you did, you'd become very fat. And that was the objective. They wanted to use corn to make cows fat. And of course, just like carry-on and the mad cow disease, we got sort of an odd cousin out of that. And that was we developed in the cow's first stomach chamber that would be its rumen, normally where it ferments grass, 
the corn entered in there into that stomach area and an E. coli, which there are millions of them present everywhere, became present that was adapted not to an alkaline environment, but an acidic environment. It became adapted to live in that environment. Now, under normal conditions, when you get an E. coli that perhaps comes through the animal's digestive system and accidentally gets on a piece of meat, doesn't happen often, but in history it has, it, you know, in the butchering process, if that piece of meat made it through the cooking process, which would be another barrier, and made it into your stomach, you have an acidic stomach. So an alkaline-adapted E. coli wouldn't survive in your stomach. It'd have no chance of making it. You would kill it instantly. But because we fed corn, we ended up with an E. coli, E0157H7, a certain strain that was particularly resistant to an acidic environment. And we ended up with a problem because if it made it through all those checks and balances and did actually make it into your body, it was already adapted to survive in an acidic environment and it would kill you. So the USDA, again, in their reactive mode, and I understand that. I don't fault the USDA. I don't think they're evil people. They're just trying to do the best they can. They reacted to that and they said, okay, what we have to do is we have to now spray all meat with a lactic acid because the lactic acid will kill the E. coli if by chance it got through. And so this lactic acid would actually destroy O157H7 or has been shown to do that. And so all meat from that point forward had to be sprayed with a lactic acid as per USDA guidelines. So what you have is you have a system that isn't running the way it's supposed to. And the fix on top of the fix on top of the fix is always these reactionary things to try to get things to work. Oh, I need to get it to work. We need to stop hurting people with E. coli, understandably, and it makes sense. But the fact is, if we could just step back and go, you know, no one ever raised their hand and said, should we be feeding corn to cows? No one ever raised their hand and said, should we be feeding carry-on, ground-up animals to an herbivore? And that is what makes the difference in grass-fed is we just go back to the basics and we just say, look, I've got to get back to basics. What does a cow eat in nature? Well, it's the descendant of the buffalo. What did the buffalo eat? Grass, man. It ate nothing but grass. Grass, grass, and only grass. And you see in that, we avoid all of those problems. We bypass them completely. I've never worried about E. coli in my beef, ever, never. Uh, not in a single beef we've ever raised. We've been doing this 13 years, never had an issue. Why? We just simply don't give it an environment where it can flourish. Hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I definitely remember hearing about the mad cow panic back in the day. And it's just a great example of why centralized systems are just too risky. One mistake can ripple out and do so much damage because there's basically only five farms in the country supporting everybody. So yeah, it's it's much better to have decentralized local systems. Uh, even if something bad were to accidentally happen, the fallout isn't nearly as as nationwide as if something goes wrong in a Tyson plant. It's it's just kind of insane that we would allow ourselves to be so vulnerable. But that is the system we're in. A few corporations rise to the top, choke out all the other ones, lobby so that the regulations are too much for small farms to accommodate and you know they just kind of do their thing it's an unfortunate system definitely we need to change much of it and you're absolutely right greg one of the beauties of being a direct rancher is that i am totally and personally connected to all of my customers they can pick up the phone and they can ask us questions which has incredible power that was just one of the beauties of the frankly, of the capitalistic system in its early days is there was one-to-one -one accountability. And when we 
blur those lines and allow giant agricultural corporations on the industrial level to operate, they lose that connection with their consumers. They lose that accountability, frankly. It's an accountability. And so, you know, my customers can call me and ask me questions and they can go, hey, I've got a question about how you do this and I can answer them. And if it doesn't fit them, there's probably a rancher out there that would love to have their business. You know, we've had a number of people call and say, look, I want corn fed beef. And I go, that's just not something we provide. But I'm sure there's a hardworking rancher out there that would like to do that. I don't agree with that method. It's not something that I endorse or would do for many, many other reasons other than the fact that it actually is not good for the cow. It's not good for the person. It's certainly not good for the environment. But the beauty of the system is in the free market of ideas and the free market of products, you know, if I'm out there and I'm peddling my wear and the guy next to me is doing his, well, let the games begin. May the best man win. Let's just move forward. And what we're noticing, it's beautiful, is as people are becoming more conscious of this, there's always a silver lining in some of this that people are now beginning to say, wait a second, what am I supporting with my food dollar? What giant corporate foreign entity that controls 80% of the beef production in the U.S. What are they doing with this money? And am I helping the environment or am I hurting it? Or am I maybe even just slightly tipping the scales in the environment's favor? You know, I don't know that we can solve all the world's climate problems with grass-fed beef. I think we can play a good part, but it's going to take a collective effort and it's going to take people putting on their thinking caps, listening to shows like this and going, gee, I never knew that and giving it some thought. And taking that step to kind of go, well, you know, I think I want to seek out somebody or some small family or perhaps a different ranch or something other than Sunrise would be fine with me. But, you know, somebody that we could support and become connected to and linked to. And, you know, maybe those people are saying, I can't raise beef myself, but I can certainly support somebody that does. Mm-hmm. Well said. And let's get into 2020 a bit. We were hearing all this stuff about the food supply breaking down, meat packing plants were forced to close, social distancing is a tough thing to follow in a Tyson chicken plant. It made a lot of us feel like we might be vulnerable to food scarcity for the first time in a lot of our lives. How did all this affect you? And what are your thoughts on what we saw in the world of meat production in the first half of this year? Boy, that's a great question, Greg. And I don't know how many days we have for this broadcast because there's a, that's a, that's a long subject. One of the things that we saw initially was the scarcity. And I, I think that made panic. And panic, of course, you have to really resist that feeling of self-protection. And of course, those store shelves began to empty out quite quickly. Of course, during that time, we saw a huge number of customers come to us. We've always been a small family ranch. We have a loyal, loyal, loyal group of supporters. We have customers that have been with us from day one and stood in the rain to get our product. Those people we were most interested in protecting because we could literally have a website and someone would come and just buy out the entire inventory. So that was a bit of a problem. It was a bit of an issue that we struggled with initially. The other thing was that, remember, the current food production is controlled on the beef side, and I'm only going to talk about beef for just a moment. We can talk about poultry and that sort of thing and hogs later. But the entire beef production system is controlled by four major international companies. I won't name them. You can look them up on the internet, but about 80% of all beef production. And the way they've done that is they've built vertically integrated operations. So they buy cattle, they process cattle, they package cattle, they give it to the supermarket. So when the stores started to be overrun, those companies 
thought, hey, this is an excellent opportunity for us to raise prices because everybody in America understands supply and demand. So we can use this as an opportunity to increase prices. And that's exactly what they did. If you notice the price of supermarket beef, it kind of did what gas did. If you ever remember the days when gas was $1.99 or 99 cents, at one point it went up and we thought, oh, it'll spike up and it'll come back down. And it would do that a couple of times. And then eventually it just stayed super high because the collective shock wears off in society over time. Same thing with beef. So what they did when they raised their prices under the auspice of, hey, we've had to shut down all of our plants, was they just kept the prices high. That pushed a lot of consumers to find local ranches. It pushed a lot of people to find local production systems. So the problem is that, and this is very complicated, but it's understandable. And that is that, you know, we raise beef, but we also have to process that beef. And we can't just harvest a beef right on our ranch and then throw it in packages. It's got to go to a USDA shop or it's got to go to a custom harvest facility. Those are two different entities entirely. And what we noticed was that all the custom shops and all of the USDA harvest facilities immediately booked out. Because you see, over time, since small ranching and small farming has depleted over many, many years since the farm crisis in the 80s until now, those shops began to close. Those mom and pop small butcher shops that say do 14 animals a week or 12 animals a week as opposed to 500 a day. So the small shops, the small butcher plants booked out. I mean, you can't get a butchering appointment right now. I can raise a beef, but I can't get a butchering appointment until 2021, late 2021. Now, thank goodness we had really good relationships with our USDA and our custom butcher shop. So we had a longstanding relationship with them and they secured us all the butchering allocation that we needed to keep the company running. And, and we were very grateful for that. But with all the demand in the world, it would be as if, Greg, it'd be as if you had a tomato garden and you decided one day that tomatoes were popular and everybody wanted to pay you a lot of money for a tomato. And Sacramento said, hey, that's great, Greg, you can raise a tomato, but you have to wash it in a sink in Northern California before you sell it. <laughs> so you'd have to you know, harvest all your tomatoes, drive all the way up to Northern California, wash them all in a special sink that they only have, and then drive them all the way back to your customers in Southern California. It's just not practical. And that's what's happened in this giant siloized meat system that we have is, is you can have producers everywhere, but if you don't have a legal way to get it to the consumer after it's been, quote, federally inspected, you're in trouble. You can't get that product to the customer. Hmm. So there's a huge bottleneck in the meat system. And I think the large producers knew that small producers like us, yeah, we'd be able to grab some of their customers. And we did. We've had a lot of great converts. A lot of wonderful people came over and their final steak was from Costco and their first grass fed was from us and they're never leaving again. But it was a hard gain. It was, it was kind of, we, <laughs> we really had to work hard to get those people added into our system. And frankly, the small farm industrial direct or non-industrial system that we run is really not suited to run gigantic operations. Um, it's just, we're not that mature as a nation in terms of our production facilities. Mm. Man, yes, those bottlenecks were exactly the kind of thing that people were starting to worry about. Also the fact that it seems like the typical sales, a lot of them were going to restaurants and then they're closed. Also the nationwide school program, they're not buying food as they had routinely for so long. It just radically changed the way the American family would spend their food dollar. And I'm sure just adjusting to that is difficult. Yeah. And so there were some great positives of this last year. I mean, it, like I said, I try to be a real positive kind of guy. The cows get out. We go, well, you know what? We're going to learn how to 
get the cows back in then. So we try to take the optimistic approach to things. One of the great things was Americans went back to their kitchen. That was real encouragement for your small local farmer because when you got back to your kitchen, you went, you know, I'm tired of the same bland old big chain box store food I get. I think I'll go find a small farmer who grows tomatoes or chickens or beef and get some really high quality stuff. And so they invested in that and we saw great dividends from that. We, again, developed a lot of great relationships through that time period. So that was a real plus. We also noticed that Yes, there was a strain on our small system, but there was a lot more value. We'd get phone calls and have what's equivalent to a 30 or 40 minute conversation with people who had never even knew that they could buy stuff outside of a grocery store, especially meat. That was just foreign to them. They'd just never tried it before. They get to try it for the first time. They're blown away. It also helped us as a company. It was really neat because we would come up with, and this is the beauty of small business, and I'm not saying this to tout my own horn. I mean, I've got wonderful people that are supporting me and surrounding me and advising me. You know, it was half the time it's their idea and I just vote on it, sign it into law. One of the kids came and said, dad, you know, why don't we store beef for our customers? And I thought, why would we do that? And they go, well, it'll allow them to, to have a full supply. And we have cold storage. We have gigantic cold storages that we store our beef, pork and chicken in. And once it comes off the ranch for harvest and we have backup generators, there were people that were wanting to stock up, but these are urbanites. They don't have the room to put in a giant you know, stand-up freezer, say, in their apartment in downtown L.A. or what have you. And so what we would do is we'd allow them to buy a beef. They would harvest it, have it cut the way they wanted under a custom program, and we would put their name on it, and we would just keep it in storage for them and just charge them a small monthly fee. And then we were their own personal food supply. So they weren't going to the store. They were getting online and entering a web order form that says, hey, send me a box of my beef. And we'd put it on one of our delivery trucks and they'd get a box of their beef. It was their beef personally cut for them. Mm -hmm. So that was a neat, innovative thing. I got to see that. That probably would have never happened short of COVID-19. Huh. Yeah. That was a genius idea. Cause when I started having the conversation with friends, Hey, you guys want to split a cow? That was the first concern was I just don't have anywhere to put it. And then, uh, you know, I did tell them about that option. We're like, okay, that will be plan B. First, we'll just try to split it amongst enough people that it won't be inconvenient. And then plan B will be uh, that storage. So yeah, I thought that was a really great idea from just a business perspective, because that is probably the number one thing people are dealing with is like, well, what does a cow even look like when it's cut up? And like, do I have enough room? So kudos to you for that one. You know, in your blog, talking about some of the things of 2020, there is a point where you say, in the next few months, the food supply in America will be in the ICU. And I have had several other guests say similar things, but I don't know that people have really seen a shortage or the empty freezers in grocery stores that they might have expected. And obviously, there's a lot of other issues with factory farming that we've talked about. But do you think that the meat production chain is through the woods on this problem or not really? You know, I don't think so. And what I meant by that was that the small farmers that are constantly fighting the large industrial system, the farmers like us that are swimming upstream, and frankly, we get abuse hurled on us from just about every side. We don't quite fit into the ranching community. You know, I wear a cowboy hat, but sometimes I wear a beanie. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes that just sends my rancher buddies through the moon. They just can't understand why I would drive a small pickup truck and not a big, loud diesel one. Or, you know, <laughs> you just don't fit in around here, Doug. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's okay with us. We like to kind of swim opposite the stream because we think that's where innovation is made. But what's 
interesting about that is we also face a lot of that on the other side, the non-production side, the customer side. People will often stand at the farmer's market and say, you know, why is your beef more expensive than Walmart? And at which point I have a whole lot of explaining to do. So I tell people we equally offend on both sides and we just have unique ranching methods that sort of verge on lunatic. And we have definitely a unique product that's sort of hard to grasp in terms of the consumer's mind to wrap around. But when I say that I think industrial food is going to take a blow on this, what I mean by that is the small farmers are much more agile and much more adaptive. And I'll give you a great example. When we came up with that idea of storing beef for our customers, man, I don't think Tyson could have done that. I don't think they could have moved that fast. And if I can take 10 other ranchers, 10 other interns and train them on my ranch for a year and go, guys, here's how you move. And boy, spin circles around the big boys. I mean, just outmaneuver them. You can turn a small frigate a whole lot faster than you can turn a battleship. And I tell those guys, just move fast. You know, let's innovate. And that's what America's built on is these great ideas moving fast, quickly iterate. And I think this was one of the first harbingers of bad news for industrial meat. I think industrial meat, as we move forward, is going to have the curtain lifted more and more. And there are going to be a whole lot of people in American society that begin to start and look and investigate and say, there's something not right about this. Low quality product huge industrial subsidies, tons of lobbying and rules. And I think there's going to be a backlash. I think that this was kind of the first blow where the American consumer started to wake up a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, a bit of a silver lining definitely applies to me. And even before the COVID stuff, I would hear some talk about what almost seemed like an attack on small farmers through either corporate lobbying or government regulations that would almost pushed them out of business or seemed as though they were designed to. Do you see certain regulations in our system as mechanisms that actually seem to hurt small farms and are tilted towards helping the corporate ones? Yeah, Greg, and that's a sad commentary. Unfortunately, it's not veiled in any way. Large producers can lobby Congress for rule changes. We saw this when grass-fed got redefined by the USDA as not like you and I would think. When you and I think of grass-fed, we like to think of a cow out on pasture eating nothing but grass its entire life. They were lobbied, the USDA got lobbied for a rule change that said grass-fed, the word fed, English language fed, is past tense. So if it was fed grass, it is grass-fed. In other words, Greg, if you ate an orange today, tomorrow you would be (laughs) orange-fed. But in fact, you didn't eat oranges your whole life. You were just fed an orange. (laughs) So it's a little bit of a play on words. We see that sort of a thing. They'll lobby USDA for a rule change. Somebody will come up with, for example, something that's self-created. They'll find it, say, a piece of a nail in meat. And you go, well, that's kind of gross. An actual wooden nail, like you would nail two boards together Mm -hmm. in a piece of meat. And they go, okay, that's it. We've got to have a rule change. We need metal detectors at every USDA plant. Well, the large producers that run 5,000 head of cattle a day through their butchering plant go, well, that's no problem. We'll just throw that in with the next order of whatever we get, and we'll install giant metal detectors at the end of the assembly line. So every package of meat that comes off gets run through a metal detector, and we can detect if there was a piece of shard metal or a piece of nail or something in the meat, and we'll be able to scan for that. Now, take that same rule change and apply it to the small USDA producer that's been, you know, passed down his USDA plant 
an artisanal butcher, a guy that hand cuts steaks and does, I don't know, 14 beef a week. Do you think he can install a million dollar metal detector on the end of his assembly line? No. no. But the rule remains the same. USDA says, nope, we got one size fits all. You got to have a metal detector. And I've sort of made that as an example of it is not veiled. The USDA and the large producers do not want small competition. There's a few practical reasons for that. It's somewhat understandable. A USDA inspector can go spend eight hours at a plant where they do 500 animals in a day and he can inspect all of them. Or he can go spend eight hours in a plant where they do two animals in a day and can inspect both of them. So there's a, you know, in terms of number of animals inspected per man hour or person hour, there's some trade-offs there. And you can see how government is, you know, trying to say, well, we need to cut back and be more efficient, et cetera. But in reality, a lot of times, unfortunately, that's a veil for, yeah, we just really don't want the small producer around. They're bad competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see that across so many different industries that Sometimes you find the biggest corporations lobbying for regulations or certain changes because they're willing to take the gamble that they're the only ones who can comply and a lot of mom and pop shops will not be able to. It is a sad thing, but it is a strategy in the, the greed-dominated world. And what about climate change re regulation? Because we are hearing people like Kamala Harris say that the government could and should limit Americans' access to red meat to fight climate change, which just really sounds insane to me, but how would you respond to someone saying that this is a problem, that we probably do need to limit our access to red meat? I mean, climate change regulation has got to be something that is on your mind these days. Oh, it constantly is. And I'm a fan of saying that it's not the cow, it's the how. Mm. And that if cattle are used correctly, they can actually fight climate change. But unfortunately, we have an entire industrial system that isn't using cattle correctly. You have to understand, Greg, that where you and I are sitting, if it were 500 years ago, 70 million buffalo would be roaming across the great northern plains and the western United States. And that herd of buffalo would be moving very quickly, not at a trot, but they would be sort of taking a step, bite, eat, take a step, bite, eat. And they would be pruning the ecosystem. Now, the beautiful thing about pruning the ecosystem is, number one, it reduces fire hazard. When the ecosystem is pruned and trampled, that doesn't mean that it prevents fire, but what it does is those fires burn a whole lot less hot. In addition to that, it would prevent any of the shrubs from growing in proliferation like we see them on the western landscapes in California, which burns almost all the time, and there would be a whole lot more grass available because the grass is going to respond to the cow that's grazing it. Think of it like a teeter-totter. You know, the old classic teeter-totter with the balance point in the middle. And on one side, you have a cow. And on the other side, you have the grass. And as the cow trims the grass, the grass then has to respond by growing because its whole goal in life is to go to seed, to get tall and go to seed. And then, of course, the cow trims it again and trims it again. But what's unique is that the cow is out the back end dumping fertilizer that causes the grass to grow. So you see the whole system is a interrelated balance. It's an interrelated ecosystem that one is feeding off the other. And so in an effort to reduce climate change, to bring back the carbon levels in the atmosphere, one of the things plants do is they send a root system down into the ground. And we have a picture of this on our Instagram. It's fascinating. About halfway down our Instagram feed, there's some bearded guy with a red bearded guy with a hat. I found the photo because it illustrates it so well. And on one side of the photo, he is holding in his hand the root system of a perennial grass. 
And on the other side behind him, he has the root system exposed of an annual crop. Now, you and I both know that annuals need to be planted annually. That's where they got their name. And perennials are ever-present. What's beautiful about a perennial grass is that for every foot above ground, there are roughly two feet below ground of, of root system. And those roots do a whole number of things. They infiltrate and break up the ground so that when it rains, the ground can hold or the capillary action of the water can actually be sequestered deeper into the ground. We estimate that there's an additional 23,000 gallons of water being held underground on a perennial system than there would be on an annual system. So that's the first thing is there's a deepening of the roots. The roots in that picture are as tall as the man holding them, which is really astonishing. And on the behind them, where you see he's growing barley, they're maybe just a few inches deep. And again, those roots are through our buscular mycorrhizal fungi, which is sort of a gluey substance in the ground. They're storing carbon at the end of their filament, which are like little fingers that are storing carbon below ground. So we can actually take atmospheric carbon and draw it down. But you can only do that if you have the balance to the teeter-totter. Perennials will only grow so tall unless they're pruned. Well, we can't get out there with a weed whacker and prune all the perennials. So what do we use? Well, we should use ruminants. Ruminants are cows, water buffalo, bison. We don't really have those around in our region. So cows are actually the right answer for that. So if we employ the cow, we can actually draw down atmospheric carbon. And of course, all the other subjects we've been talking about, we can have a better product, a happier animal, a healthier animal, better society. We can create local jobs and connections and community interaction. You can have local accountability and we can fight the big giant industrial farm system, which is kind of one of my goals in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mine too. And to really drive this home, you do say on the website that We've estimated that it takes only 1.78 calories of petroleum to produce a single calorie of beef or pork from our ranch, far less than the nine calories needed in conventional corn-fed CAFO industrial systems. Well, I'm sure the grazing that you just broke down is a major factor there, but are there other processes that also have a big impact on that? Yeah, the higher carbon number has to do with the fact that if I'm grazing cattle, the perennial grasses are responding to the cow. And so the only inputs I really need are that are water, rain, sunlight, air, things that are pretty much kind of free. Uh, water's debatable, but you could just do it from annual rains if you wanted to. And when I'm doing that with a corn-based system, because I'm going against nature, I'm having to pay the upfront cost of all that in terms of petrocarbons, in terms of fuels. I've got to grow the corn in the Midwest, and then I've got to run a harvester out to go ahead and grain harvest that. And then I've got to ship it to a train, and the train has to ship it out to the West Coast. And the West Coast distributor has to put it on a truck and get it to the feedlot. And so I'm actually swimming upstream. I'm actually doing quite a bit of extra work, whereas I could just take those same cows and just graze them on the grass grown on the hillsides. In addition to that, it's not a very good use of our resources. In order to grow corn, we've got to have arable land. We've got to have flat land that is well irrigated and drained correctly. It's got to be accessible. Cattle can graze on the side of a hill that you couldn't use really for anything else. You could grow California chaparral on the side of that hill if you'd like to. It'll get really dry. It'll get really, really crisp. And the first spark will light it off and it'll burn like crazy. 
That's the other thing you can do with a hillside in California. We prefer to just take grass and cows, put the two together, which are naturally symbiotic in nature, have the cow prune the grass and the grass respond to the cow. And that system actually creates its own food for the cow, which is just wonderful. Mm. So when we came up with that 9.25, that was a graduate school exercise that I did for my master's thesis. And we came up with that caloric input. We ran through quite a bit of algorithms and spreadsheets to try to figure that out. There's a bunch of different factors in there, but really what it had to do with was basically all the infrastructure required just to get the feed to the cow when in fact the cow was actually standing on feed all along. Hmm. <laughs> Man, it does seem quite simple, but I'm also really interested in the intelligence of it all and the intelligence of nature that emerges through the complex processes that are going on that maybe we took for granted or we didn't realize, like the networks of roots and uh, fungi underneath the surface. But in one of your videos, you use a great line that you have been ranching with less hubris and more humility, letting the intelligence of nature do its thing as you're breaking down with the grazing and the grass. And I like that. But what are some other places on the ranch that you see that intelligence in nature with what you do? Maybe things that you didn't expect at first. Well, one of the things we never expected was the actual interaction of multi-species together. And this blew my mind the first time we did this. I just couldn't believe it. It's quite a bit of, oh gosh, I don't know, gusto, if you will, to try to just raise one animal type. Again, it goes back to that overwhelming sense of, wow, I sure hope I know what I'm doing. What we found that was really fascinating is cows have a huge amount of potassium in their urine. And we know that potassium is one of the three sought out elements. We have nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, N, P, and K. Those are in the farming world, in the agricultural world, those are the basics of what you need for fertilizers. Of course, they're all chemically made, but we know that the cows actually secrete that in their urine. Potassium comes out in their urine naturally and plentifully. What we didn't know and what we didn't realize is that nitrogen comes from chicken manure. And we also found that there was a symbiotic relationship between chickens and ruminants. Now, why is that? Well, simply because ruminants manure a lot. Chickens do too, but ruminants manure a very high pile of manure, and that is attractive to bugs, all kinds of bugs, mostly flies, but bugs of all types, beetles, that kind of a thing. And of course, birds love bugs. So that was an interesting sort of interrelationship that I'd never seen before. And then I began to think back to being a kid and watching, you know, the videos of the Serengeti and what have you. And you'd see a water buffalo and there'd be a bird perched on its back waiting for dinner to be delivered. And you'd go, wow, that's kind of interesting. Those are symbiotic relationships. Nature puts those together. And I began to think, I wonder if we could do that on the ranch. And so what we found was that chickens would actually spread manure patties if we ran them into the field behind our cows. So imagine a group of cows being grazed and they're contained by electric wire and they're moved every day. And so the rancher builds another electric wire, single wire, the lightweight electric wire that we use on the ranch, connects it to the charger, moves the cows into the next rotation. And then about two or three days later, after their manure has had a chance to kind of dry up and mature, we move our chickens in and the chickens will naturally spread the manure out of the way looking for the bugs. So I get free manure spreading. But what are the chickens also doing at that time? Well, they're doing their manure too, which happens to be very high in nitrogen. 
And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. So we have nitrogen and potassium all on one field. And then one day I read a study about how pigs have a very high concentration of phosphorus in their manure. And I went, wait a second, I could run my pigs in and I could use them to till the ground, to lightly massage the ground in addition to depositing phosphorus for free. And so what I ended up with was in a natural setting, in a natural way, I was able to get nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus onto my fields and keep my animals happy, healthy, and moving all the time. And so it became a synergistic effect, and it surprised the daylights out of us as to how that ecosystem responded to that. We kind of got the basic idea was from just realizing that nowhere in nature do we ever see a monospecies or a monocrop. You only see that if humans are involved. And so we began to see a diversity of plant life. The seedbed that is ever-present and dormant for as much as 100 years began to come to life because certain nutrients were available that hadn't been available for perhaps many, many years are now available through those manures and through that system began to grow a better grass base and hold more carbon, hold more water, provide more feed for the animals that were actually grazing on it. It was this beautiful balancing as one would notch up, the other would notch up, and the other would notch up, and they would sort of almost kind of try to outdo each other. That blew our mind. Yeah, that is really interesting. I'm sure most people listening are well aware that monocrop agriculture is way worse than high biodiverse food gardens, but I hadn't really thought much about scaling that up to the animal level. But you're right, you don't see it in nature. It's always a big melting pot, so you would expect these things to interplay with each other as they seem to do. That is awesome. Yeah. The neat thing about that, Greg, was that what was happening below the surface, I'm a fan of saying that as a cattle rancher, your business happens below the hoof. That is to say, most cattle ranchers are focused on the cattle. And I understand that, that you do have some cattle care you need to take care of and some, some breeding issues, et cetera, things like that. But all of your activity really needs to be focused below the hoof because what's happening below the ground is more important to your system than what's happening above your ground. If you take care of everything below the surface, everything above the surface will be thrown in for free. You'll have healthy cattle. You'll have healthy ecosystems. You'll have good water cycles and mineral cycles. If you focus entirely on the animal, you'll focus too much on the animal, too much on how the animal's condition is, and you'll deplete the below ground system. And eventually, like a bank account, you'll just withdraw too much money and go bankrupt. Hmm. That makes sense to me. And, you know, we do have listeners all around the world and in every state. Many of them had their jobs disrupted by COVID and all that stuff. If some of them out there were thinking about maybe taking this leap towards ranching or at least maybe securing their own uh, meat for their own inner circle and family and maybe raising a couple cows or something like that, do you have any, any advice for avoiding beginner's mistakes or getting over some of the hurdles a person would have in the first stage is when they just start thinking about maybe getting excited about taking the reins in this area? Well, I think one of the greatest pieces of advice I could give is seek out those with perhaps a little bit more experience than you've got. And it could be anything from zero to 60, right? I mean, I tag along very, very closely to some of my most, you know, some guys that are more experienced in this area. Joel Salatin comes to mind, Gabe Brown. I follow these guys real closely. They probably don't know me very well, but I follow them and I, and I look at what they're doing. Because I'm sort of more advanced in that. I mean, we've been doing this for a while. For the beginner, 
One of our visions, Greg, is we've got our eyes on a project that we've been working on for a few years now. It's coming along nicely. I can't give the location or the details, but it'll be in the San Diego area. We want to start a farm school. We want to start a very simple place where you can come and the very serious-minded who are perhaps business-minded and actually want to start a production farm can come and do an internship with us and then stay on for the remaining year so they would do a summer and we could teach them and pour into them as much as we possibly could. An annex to that farm school is we've got a location where we think we could do kind of a, a main cabin with a few outlying buildings and we'd be able to host people for a week at a time. And we thought we could do a few different tracks and one of the tracks would be <laughs> would be what we call the homesteader track. We call it Blue's Clues, the Farm Curious. And what it is, you can come out for a week on the ranch and, and you get to eat on the ranch, you get to stay on the ranch, and then we'll have basic courses for you to do for a week. This is for the Mr. and Mrs. Accountant from downtown San Diego who have bought their retirement property out in the boonies and, and they don't know the first thing about cabin or you know how to repair a fence or what have you. It would basically be sort of a crash course in homesteading, right? We, we'll do everything we can to teach you in a week and then you come stay a week with us and there'd be a limited number of folks that get to come. And, and we think something like that would be very valuable. There's almost no place where you can go and get that practical day-to-day down-home experience. I mean, you can go and get a degree in ag sciences from a land-grant university and, and learn how to GPS program the latest tractor that costs $250,000 to row the crops all on its own. But nobody will teach you, how do I collect eggs? Do I wash eggs? How do I take care of a hen? What do I look for if a calf's sick? You know, how do I take care of a pig? How do I keep a pig in? Uh, <laughs> how do I milk a cow? You know, these are all the things that we think we could cover in a week. We'd probably give you just enough information to be dangerous. And then I'd say you head out and keep my phone number. You'd be able to call if you got any questions. But I think it'd be just really neat for people that, you know, there's this whole move to get to the country. And I think people are getting to the country and they don't know what to do when they get there. Hmm. Yeah, that is a great idea. I would love to uh, see something like that. I'm sure I have some buddies that would enjoy taking a course like that with me. I know there was a local place called the Hart and Trotter that was like a, a butcher shop and it's now been bought out and they're kind of changing the way they do things. But for a while they were offering uh, classes in breaking down an animal. And once we bought the cow, we were like, oh, that'd be kind of interesting just to learn how to break it down because you get these forms on how you want the butcher to butcher it to custom break it down. And you're like, I don't know, do whatever you would do because I have no clue at all. Yeah, And uh, it would just be a good way to get closer to the meat. So stuff like that, I'm all in favor of. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can harvest a chicken quite easily and a chicken can make three meals for a family and they don't compete with you in the food supply. They can live off of kitchen scraps and all kinds of good stuff from the backyard and the, the garden from last summer. And it's just a really efficient way to become self-sufficient. You know, we're the farm school will be for everybody that wants to be a production, regenerative agriculture intern and wants to really learn it as a business, all the way to people who are just kind of curious about farming. And could we support ourselves on five acres? Well, yeah, you certainly can. Mm. Yeah, that was going to be one of my big questions is uh, obviously it's very expensive to get any kind of land in California. What is kind of the minimum that you could, if, if you were just like an inner circle of uh, five six, seven couples who are trying to maybe start their own thing just for themselves. What is like the minimum amount of land that a couple of cows need? Well, it depends on the environment and it depends on the rainfall. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to have to turn the question on its toes. And the reason for this is we now live in such a regulatory world 
that you could have all the land in the world or just enough to do what you wanted to do, but the city or the state or the county won't allow you to have the animals. That is the biggest hindrance we have to actually using the ecosystem effectively to support people. And when you look around California, just in the area that you and I live in, there's a tremendous amount of productive capacity just in terms of the grass. And yet the political will of the people is we don't want to see animals anywhere. We have some friends who live just inside the limits and they were fined for having chickens. Wow. And you think to yourself, what? You're fined for having chickens confined in your own, own yard? So it's really not so much an issue of how much land do I need or how much do I have available. I mean, there's a certain lower limit to that, and it depends on the grass production and whether or not you have water available. But really, your biggest hurdle right now is that the systems of government don't want animal production near people. And it's really odd because, again, we talked about how in nature we always see a species integrated. In other words, throughout antiquity, people would live with animals. They wouldn't necessarily have them sleep in their beds, although I think that happened in the castles in the old days to keep you warm. But, I mean, the animals and people coexisted to a certain degree. The food supply was integrated with the Homo sapien. And so the idea that we separate those things is, again, it's completely agnostic to how nature actually operates. There's plenty of usable pastures and grass production all around us. There's river valleys that need grazed with cattle. There's hillsides that need to be cleaned and could produce good, clean beef for us. But as a society, we're very much into saying, no, that needs to be a natural area or a preserved area. Well, what's natural about an area that has no animals? There's nothing natural about that whatsoever. <laughs> we see ecological preserves all the time in San Diego County and in, in the area that we live. It just astonishes me. You'll drive by, there'll be a giant chain link fence and a big white sign on the front that says, ecological area, don't enter. And I think to myself, okay, well, maybe that's valid. Maybe we should keep the humans out, but where's the animals? You know, where are the cows that are grazing that? Where are the buffalo if you wanted to be really, really natural? You see, the buffalo would go through there, they'd keep the fire danger down, they would trample the soils, they would aerate the soil with their hoofs and allow for water infiltration, the grasses would respond. You remove half of that and you have that unbalanced teeter-totter where one side just falls to the bottom. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, those are great points. And I know we're nearing the end of the line here, but I'm going to throw this in because it is relevant. I pulled this off the blog, but... You wrote about one of these policies and you said, does anyone remember the cattle free by 93 campaign? It was the well-intentioned but horribly misguided concept that all cattle must be off public land by 1993. It worked. Well, the campaign did at least, but the results have been disastrous. If you look around at public land today, a mere 15 years later, you begin to see the beginnings of desertification. Small brown strips are starting to appear on hillsides everywhere. Without cattle on public lands, my children's children will eventually be living in a sand dune. And that was a pretty well-written, eye-opening example, and it speaks to exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, this is what Alan Savory has been harping on for many, many years. And he was the one that had the TED Talk about the spread of desertification and how, how we are headed in a particular direction that's at some point going to destroy us. When we remove ruminant grazing animals from an ecosystem, the grasses grow for a season until they begin to seed. And then they seed again, and in the next season they do the same thing. And over time, they eventually give way to what we call woody-stemmed 
plants or tap-rooted plants, which are what we would think of as brush. We see brush all over Southern California. And that brush has just one stem that goes into the ground. It has a fairly shallow root system. And because it grows up and sort of spreads out like a tree, it creates a small section of shade. And underneath it, no grass grows. And so what you have is sort of a bare spot underneath it. And then, of course, as there's still no animals who come and trample that brush, it's just left to grow, the grasses next to it begin to recede as well, and it tends toward a stemmy, tap-rooted brush again. And so you have, say, two of them beside each other. And then they shade or co-shade each other, and so more grasses begin to disappear. And over time, we see a hillside that was once a lush pasture because it has no animal pressure on it. Nothing is pressurizing the plants. Remember, we talked about that weightlifter in the gym, right? There's no resistance. And so nature, in its effort to cover the scar tissue of the land, is beginning to spread brush because it has no animal to counterbalance the growth of the grass. And so we lose our grasslands and we slowly replace them with brushlands. Well, eventually over time, the brushlands even begin to deteriorate and we begin to see desertification between the pieces of brush. And so the hills that we see in California that were once covered with cattle, and there were all kinds of reasons why people wanted cattle free by 93. There were all kinds of historical reasons why they didn't want cattle on public land. Well, now that's over these years, it's all given way to brush. And now the brush is becoming a problem because what are we seeing by the millions of acres every year in California? We're seeing horrific fires. And those fires burn very, very hot. Now, what's fascinating is about this time, a year and a half ago, we lost one of our grazing units to a fire. And my favorite word is loss because it was anything but that. You see, because I had grazing rights on it, a fire burned through it. It was so thick with brush, you couldn't even walk in it. It literally couldn't walk through it. And we really couldn't graze that many more than just a few head of cattle every year on what remaining grass was there. But when that fire burned through, it completely obliterated all that brush. And what was left was a bunch of charcoal, if you will, and bare ground. And because the seedbed was present and always has been present, as soon as we got our first rains, a whole bunch of clovers and grasses started to come up. Now, at that point, we were at a critical junction. We could have said, oh, no, let's put up our white signs and our chain link fences and let's let this be a natural area. And I can guarantee you what would happen over the next course of many, many years is as that, quote, natural area with no animals grazing on it progressed through its life cycle, we would have just ended up with brush again. And we would have had a huge fire hazard just waiting to be sparked off by the latest electrical storm. We decided not to do that because we're cattle grazers and we know how to manage cattle on a grassland. We brought in our cows, and we brought them in for a very strict grazing. So as soon as the spring brought forth those prolific grasses, we brought in the pruners, our four-legged pruning machines, and we briefly moved them in, controlling them with our portable electric wire in our system, and didn't allow them to take the second bite. They moved in. They cut off the seed bed, of the seed heads from those grasses, and those grasses then grew deeper and richer. And again, we moved them in on a temporary grazing process. Again, not leaving the cattle on continually, but removing them from the ecosystem on a time-oriented program. And then we allowed it to recover and allowed it to recover. And now what we're seeing is a restoration of the grassland because, you see, we're mimicking what nature would have done with the great western herds in antiquity. 
the great western herds would have been moving a step every few minutes as they passed through that area. They would have grazed it, trampled it. They would have been moved and kept very tight, high-density pressure, thousands of hoof pounds per acre, and then the ground would have rested. They would have been promoted and pushed in their progression by the presence of pack hunting animals, of predators. We don't have the predators. What we have is electric fence. <laughs> they don't want to touch the electric fence, so we simply train them to move and set up an electric fence. They're not going to go back and graze that area again, and it allows the ground to rest and recuperate. Those grasses are grown deeper. The seed bed begins to flourish. The ground begins to hold moisture, and we fought in the opposite direction of the tap-rooted, stemmy, woody brushes that are threatening California. Huh. Wow, man. <laughs> Nature is a beautiful thing, and your range of knowledge is just so impressive. This has been a lot of fun. Lots of useful information for people, for sure. Before I cut you loose, we got to save some room to talk about your store and all that good stuff. Because this audience is all over, also talk to them about your delivery range and the variety of products you offer. So we raise beef, pork, and chicken, and we harvest all of that on sort of a weekly basis. Whatever we get from the ranch in terms of our production is whatever's offered to the public through our web store. We do everything through a website. You're certainly allowed to come up to the warehouse and place an order and get it immediately. And we do have a staff on a few days out of the week that manages that. On one day, I'm there and I love to talk to our customers. I really enjoy sitting down and talking to people. So if you're farm curious, I'd love to talk to you. But ultimately, we service customers directly out of our website. We attend kind of a smattering of farmers markets just simply because that is traditionally how we've always done it. We've always gone to farmers markets. They allow for a relaxed, fun environment where people can talk and be educated. We also get a chance to reach out into the sort of the unknowing public people that have stopped by and said, hey, I've heard about this grass-fed beef thing. Tell me about it. Gives us a chance to share some of our expertise and kind of a peek behind the curtain like we've done over the last hour or so, Greg. We do offer delivery direct to people's houses, and that's been really popular during the COVID thing, just because, you know, it's kind of convenient to have a box of meat that you select on our website. And, and again, we sell all the way down to the individual piece of meat. So you could order one steak, one package of ground beef. There's no minimum order. And we offer delivery so it can come up on your doorstep. We'll ring the doorbell, take six steps back if, you, <laughs> if that's necessary to keep you healthy and that sort of thing and wave and then drive away and you can come and get the box of meat right off your doorstep. So we have a bunch of different methods that we use to kind of sell our product. That's all on the USDA side. That's the federally inspected meat that we have to have looked at by a USDA inspector. And the reason that it has to be looked at as an inspector is if I take one of our animals and I break it down into a thousand different pieces and send it in a thousand different directions, the USDA wants to know where each of those went. And so we need to kind of have a record of where they went. What's on the other side of that spectrum is when people buy a whole or a half cow. And we have a great program where people can actually own a beef while it's live on the ranch. Believe it or not, you actually transfer title of a beef like you would a car title in California. So we have to have a brand inspector come out. They inspect the beef. It's transferred over to the new owner. And then from that point on, we just simply act as contractors because we're at your bidding as to when it gets butchered, how it gets cut up, you know, what kind of cuts you get out of it. And for that, it can go to a single family or it can go up to three other partners can split a cow. And we've had all kinds of people do these split ups and that sort of a thing. That's a different kind of tasting beef. Both sides are dry aged, 
but one doesn't have the lactic acid present because it's non-USDA, but it has a different taste entirely and it's really, really delicious. That's sort of our favorite of all of them. That's what we eat at our house is the custom beef, we call it. And so those whole beef and half beef programs are really popular. They have been through the pandemic. Lots of people interested in those. It can be anywhere from 165 pounds all the way up to like 400 pounds of meat. They come in five different sizes. Believe it or not, in the cattle world, we have, just like in the dog world, you have chihuahuas all the way up to huskies. We have big cows and little cows. You know, Angus is a medium breed cow. If you want a big one, we look for a limousine or a charlet. And because my cows are kind of a mixed bag of marbles, we've got sort of one of each out there. And so if somebody wants a large beef, we'll find them a large breed cow. And we'll butcher that under the custom program for them and have it delivered to their house. So those are two kind of separate things, and they're sold through the website. We do most of our commerce through the website, but we also answer the phone, and we love to talk to our customers. So that's kind of our pitch. Awesome. And because this audience did just hear about the importance of organ meat from Sally Fallon Morell, something I saw on your website that I'm probably going to do next time, quite creative, because I do find it a little difficult to to know what to do with those organs and to eat a liver. but you do mix organ meat into your ground beef. And I thought that was pretty genius because obviously I can eat a hamburger and that's a, a way to get some of those organ meats into you without needing to prepare a liver dish. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's really popular. Now, people do that on their custom beefs as well. We've had a whole bunch of people that say, look, I, you know, when you grind up all the ground beef, I'd like, I don't know, 75% of it normal. And then I'd like a batch of organs mixed in as well. So that's real popular. It's a great way to kind of, if the taste of the organs don't suit you, that's a great way to take that in and not be overwhelmed by the taste. Hmm. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, (laughs) I know business is good, but I hope what I do can maybe throw a little fuel on the fire. I look forward to that book coming out and getting many many sunrise meats uh, out of you. So I really appreciate what you do. It's been a a pleasure to talk to you. Sometimes people get so paralyzed by overthinking about the problems, they forget to focus a little bit on the solutions. And this is a big one. So thanks again, man. Keep doing what you do and take care. All right. Thank you, Greg. We appreciate it. Serenity now, dear people of the internet. How about that? THC, walking the walk, we've talked for so long, practicing what I preach. Really, though, not a lot of episodes have anything to do with my personal life. Obviously, this one does a bit. And I know it's like split one local beef and I start acting like Harry Homesteader over here. (laughs) Like having Bitcoin or joining a gym, one of those things you can't just shut up about. But there are so many THC episodes, too many actually where I get off the call, all jazzed up and motivated. I tell myself I'm definitely going to dig further into that and incorporate it into my life or routine, whatever it may be. And then two days later, it's all about that next show, and it just gets lost. And this one kind of worked in the reverse order. But local farms and ranches are my meat supply now. Me and my people, we split a cow from Doug, a pig from another local place, and then my lovely special lady drove almost five hours up to our buddy Justin's farm so she could kill and pluck and prep some chickens for our group down here. She's more gangster than I, but we have been eating good. And just to elaborate on what I said in the intro... When you start asking your friends and family about something like this, everybody worries about the space. A whole cow? Where's that going to go? 
And you do need a bit of room, let's say, but you can always split it down more and more. And Doug recommended we do a draft system, and we made a great day out of it. Carried in all the boxes when the truck arrived, everything's labeled and butchered down to the cuts we're familiar with. We had this giant mountain of meat spread out on the table. We drew high card for the draft order, and we just started picking. It worked out great, except there was only one large brisket, so that was something we agreed to make together at a later date. We did that. It was awesome. Don't call the cops. But we all went home happy with all sorts of cuts, and like clockwork, the conversation starts being had about cooking in animal fats and lard. We got this premium meat. We want to treat it in a premium way. This all happened right at the time I'm preparing for Sally Fallon Morell's episode, and I've just been introduced to the Weston A. Price Foundation, so it all came together. And it's given some friends of mine a new interest in cooking. For others, it's more like a next level of excitement. It did create more group meals. I mean, COVID's quite scary, but when you get that phone call, hey, we're grilling up a set of those sunrise ribs if you want to try them, or... Let's make one of those chickens Teresa killed. How do you say no? (laughs) I mean, we're all in our 30s. We don't have kids. We get excited about brisket, all right? I'm just messing around. But I do think that I've incepted some people into a food be thy medicine philosophy without even having to bring up a lot of the stuff we talk about around here. And I really shouldn't give myself that much credit because this is something we all know eat trash, feel like trash, etc., etc. But we just seem to forget it when the media tells us we're all helpless in the wake of this deadly disease sweeping the nation. Frankly, for a lot of people, it's easier to believe that because if your only and best defense is putting on a mask, that's a hell of a lot easier than kettlebell swings and being disciplined about your diet, right? To admit we have some say in our health is to admit we have some responsibility, too. So, yeah, this was obviously a THC episode for me, but I hope you still found Doug to be a knowledgeable guy worth spending some time with. When I started checking his blog, I thought I found more than enough to work with. The salt lick stuff was interesting. The biomimicry regenerative approach to farming, something we should all talk about, especially in the wake of this persistent narrative that we have to get rid of all the cows or the earth's going to just implode on itself. But obviously this audience is all over the U.S., all over the world, really. In fact, I got a strange email from Podstatus that THC is ranking very well in Turks and Caicos, number four in the self-improvement category in Turks and Caicos. Hi there and hello. Also doing pretty good in Bermuda, number 13 in self-improvement. I mean, I wish you guys were sharing it around like they're doing in Turks and Caicos, but, you know, 13's all right, not in the top 10. But the point is that I hope this conversation inspires you to see what's available in your area. It's very, very unlikely that you can't find a local ranch somewhere, wherever you are. But it is concerning that you probably won't find many. Maybe two or three or four options. There's only a handful, and that is pretty close to zero, you know, if it were to go that way. Like in my situation, if Doug decided he'd rather trade stocks in a nice air-conditioned office, then what options would I have? 
So, you know, we like to thank certain people for their service. We like to make airplane announcements and clap and cheer for various different positions. I don't know who's doing that for the rancher, but that is a service I'm very thankful for. And I'm so, so fortunate that this is what Doug decided to do. So find a local rancher and get involved in that exchange. And if you're anywhere near Southern California from the greater LA area down to my neck of the woods, I definitely hope you give Sunrise a call. Tell them you liked hearing Doug on THC and that you need the good stuff. Organ meats mixed into your ground beef, bone broth, lard, and some of the best ribs, steaks, and tri-tips I've ever had. I'm actually going to be up at the warehouse this Saturday around 9 a.m. to pick up one of our Thanksgiving turkeys, which I'm pretty psyched about trying. Maybe I'll see you there. I know I'm laying it on thick. It is one of those days. But I hope to keep supporting Sunrise as long as I can because I can't afford that kind of land out here. And I just want to make sure I'm in good with my meat guy. But when I think back to how Ice Age Farmer was talking about the food supply, I have yet to feel like I've seen any real empty shelves in the meat department. And it's not to say that we didn't see some cracks in the system or that it couldn't still come, but I never want to hype up something that isn't a real concern. Though I guess we could say just because we haven't had a crisis situation doesn't mean we shouldn't change the way we do things either. Doug gave us plenty of reasons why. He knows the business well, and I do find myself being really interested in those areas where we see the intelligence of nature and the abundance that springs out of that regenerative approach. It's night and day between the reality and the perception when it comes to self-sustainability. At least I feel like I was conditioned to expect the yields to be low and scarce and risky, as opposed to getting gallons of milk each day from one cow, or of course, chickens lay an egg into existence every day, or one cow can feed a family of four for a year, I guess, you know, I really do start to feel a little gypped, systematically thrust into system dependence, raised in that type of model, because we all were. And now that my habits are formed and I already feel so far behind, it's such a huge undertaking to try to get back to living like that somehow, as opposed to Doug's kids who are just raised with food production being a part of their lives. Honestly, my parents were always dedicating a huge amount of the yard to growing fruits and vegetables with pretty overabundant yields and huge fruit trees. And even now they have probably the best home garden that I know of. But any non-grocery meat source was just completely foreign. Finding a local farm didn't feel important, and it definitely wasn't as easy as it is now with the internet. So really, we have no excuses. Maybe money, but even that. Think about how often in the old world we used to go out with our friends. You know, we're not doing that anymore. And even if you can, instead of going out and paying these high prices... Have them over for a good meal. Make them, bring the whiskey, you show them what you know about grilling, and now you're probably saving money and eating better versus the experience you might have had going out. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'll stop my rambling and patting myself on the back. 
you know I appreciate you guys and all the loyalty and love that you've shown some random guy on the internet. We have a great, great audience, even if we don't all know each other. If you liked the first hour of today's show, there's always a second hour for Plus members. I try to bring you the best. I try to bring you useful stuff. In the second hour of today's show with Sunrise Dog, we talked about comparing the corporate pork and chicken industries to the small farm ways, system vulnerability, and EMPs. Can't believe he wrote his master's thesis on that sort of thing. The truth about raw dairy, proper cooking, and getting access to these parts of the animal that we just don't get in the grocery store, the importance of bone broth, what's going on with the dry aging, the spiritual aspects of ranching and regenerative agriculture, and some tips for taking the leap towards self-sustainability. It's going to get hard out there for a pimp, and networks are important. I think they're going to try to kick a lot of us out of the party, so we have to be able to have parties of our own. I just heard that Ticketmaster, one of the first companies to say something, is planning mandatory COVID-19 vaccine verification for concert attendance. They say a negative test will work as well, but we all know about the PCR testing, so not cool. <laughs> when they make that a requirement at the grocery store, you're going to need to know a guy like Doug. But either way, hope you found all this stuff useful, hopefully way more useful than election coverage. Extract yourself some Ormus, have a grass-fed steak, structure your water, get that sweet, sweet sunshine, and ain't nothing going to hold you back. Take care of you and yours. It's getting wild out there. Be the example you wish you had. I've done my part. Your move, freedom takers, frankenfood makers, and factory farming fascists. Your of corporate junk process stuff that makes you fat yeah it's a weak and sickly people making industry don't tell me don't tell me lie discipline is no fun I find and I don't make it all technology and every now and then i try to quit and leave it be but it's too hard to turn it off it's getting worse